good morning. I'm glad you're here today, Southbridge. And if you're a guest with us, let me just say welcome to you. And so thank you so much for coming. Hello, welcome. And uh, if you are a guest, we ask you to do one thing for us. So we don't want you to serve. We don't want you to give. We don't want you to do all that stuff. But if you would fill out a worship program, a little connection card we put in the worship program, and turn that into the first-time guest kiosk and tell us how you heard about us. We'd like to invite as many people as we possibly can to church. And so if you'd fill that out, um, that would be great in letting us know that. And then also, if you're a regular attender of Southbridge or a member, you might want to take your worship program today and open it up. Inside, you'll find, and I'll grab here this little little card that says stories on it. It's our theme for our Easter service coming up. We stuck that in there. Um, so you would have an invite card to give to a friend or a family member or somebody. We want to give it to you really to equip you um, and encourage you uh, to be able to invite someone to come. We know that God's used those before. We've done that before with different series that we're starting or different things. Um, we've, God's used that before where we've handed it to somebody. They've come to church. We've actually got a story. I think it'll be in your worship program uh, this Easter. A story of somebody who, because someone gave them an invite card, came to Christ. And so you never know how God could use that. So if you've got a friend or family member you want to invite, you know that uh, Easter is a time where people are more open to coming to church than any other time. You see that's why more people go to church on Easter than any other time. We wanted to give that to you so that you'd have that as an opportunity. And then also on your way in today, you probably saw a bunch of tables set up out in the lobby. We're doing what we call our volunteer expo today. So we've set up a bunch of different service opportunities that go on throughout the week and on Sunday mornings and different things for Southbridge. Um, if you want to volunteer, that's the place. If you're volunteering somewhere right now and maybe you're thinking about another place or you've wondered what it'd be like to be on a different team, that'd be a great day to go out in the lobby and check that out. If you are a regular attender here or a member here and you don't serve, um, that's not how we're designed. We want you to serve. And we want to provide you an opportunity. In fact, Sunday mornings are set up so you can worship during one service and serve during another. And I know some people say, well, I, I serve all week, and so this is kind of me time. Well, that's not what the Bible actually says. Once you give your life away for the sake of the gospel. And so we're giving you an opportunity to do that. And when we dismiss, I'll tell you a little bit more about it as you're heading out today. But there's opportunities at a bunch of different tables, whether it's parking lot team, setup team, write people notes during the week, all kinds of stuff. Um, work on the blog, edit videos, whatever it is that your skills and abilities are. We'd love to use those for the Lord Jesus Christ and have an impact in our, in our city together. And we're going to continue in the series we've been doing through the book of Acts. And so if you have your Bibles, you can go. We were in Acts chapter 20 last week. We're going to be there again in just a moment. I'll pray for us. And then we'll jump into the message this morning. Let me pray. Father God, thank you uh, for the opportunity to open your word together. Thank you that you've given us your word. Thank you that you speak to us. Thank you for providing for us. Thank you for providing a shelter for us to meet in today. Thanks for the incredible weather this week that we've enjoyed and the ability to be outside and enjoy your creation. And Father, thank you for friends and for our church and for people that care about us and people that we get to care about and for people in our city that you want us to give our lives away for the sake of. And thank you for more than anything for your son, Jesus Christ, and his cross. Thank you that he was willing to do your will and not what most of us would want to do in that situation. He'd lay his life out and die for us. Thank you for his blood shed for my sin. Thank you for his blood shed for our sins that we've come to know you. Thank you for purchasing the church with your blood and making us your bride, caring about us and loving us. And I pray in these moments as we open up your word, we would sense your love, we would sense your care, and we would see you. You'd speak to us and change us and equip us to be the people you desire for us to be. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, as we get started this morning, I have a little fun with you and play a little game. It's called What's Better? The way the game works is this. I'm going to say two things, one thing versus the other thing, and you're going to tell me which one you think is better. You can do that by raising your hand, or you can yell. I'd ask that you wouldn't heckle people for making the other decision, whichever one that is. And we'll start with some easy questions. So I'll say things like Pepsi or Coke. You tell me what's better. So what's better, Pepsi or Coke? Pepsi, Coke. Kind of, all right, let me try and figure, filter this out here. How many people said Pepsi? How many people, Coke people? You can still make noise when I follow up here. Woo, yeah, yeah Coke, woo, the real thing. Oh, fake thing, but we make it in a factory. Anyway, um, 
All right, we'll go to another one. Pet people, pet lovers out there. It's kind of that controversy, dogs and cats. What's better, dog or cat? How many people say dog? Dogs. All right, got some, lots of dog people here today. How many people, cat people? Cats. I just said cat. There was a whoop. I wondered what kind of noise people would make for cat. Because dog is like, whoop, whoop, yeah, I'm on there. Cats just, we're going to stare at you. I'm just going to figure you out. That's kind of what cats do. How about sports? If you only get to enjoy one sport, and I understand it's March, and I understand basketball country that we live in here, but you only get to enjoy one sport, football or basketball, what's better, football or basketball? How many football people? Football? A couple people said football. I'd be a football person. How many basketball people? And, yeah, all right. I heard you, Courtney. Gotcha. I hear it over there. All right. Now, you know where this is headed, right? I'm going to ask you next. Carolina or Duke? What's better, Carolina or Duke? And wait, 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 wait. Before you answer, state people, you have to pick. If they play each other, they can't both lose. Okay? That's just the way that it works. Somebody's got to win. Somebody's got to lose. So, how many people, if it's between Carolina and Duke, how many Duke? How many Carolina? How many state? That seems like we're pretty evenly mixed here. I don't know. All right, we won't make it so controversial. I understand the church unity. So we're going to keep going here. How about some food questions? Grilled or fried? What's better? And you're not at the fair, okay? Whatever circumstances you're in, just forget the circumstances. And when I ask you this, I'm not asking you what's better for you. I'm not asking you what, do you, what tastes better. I'm asking you which one do you pick? Grilled or fried? How many people are grilled people? How many fried people? How many people think that's too invasive of a question? All right. How many people wish that you were grilled people, but you're actually fried? I, I, that's me. That's okay. All right. How about this one? You get to pick a drink, a hot drink or a cold drink, and you got to pick. And so you're a coffee person, like a lemonade person. You have to pick which one it is. I'm not a coffee person. And I don't even understand the dialect of coffee people. I went through the drive-thru at Starbucks with my wife the other day, and I was going to order her drink. I actually ordered so poorly that the Starbucks lady said, do you want to try that again? <laughs> and I said, I just looked at my wife. I said, go out. We were at the drive-thru. I said, you go out. Just go ahead and say it. I don't even want to try this again. Some of you are hot drink people. What's better, hot drink or cold drink? How many hot drink people? How many cold drink people? Yeah, it's getting hot. You've got to have the right kind of ice too, right? Like it's not just the drink. You've got to have it just right. I'm going to ask you a couple other ones. You don't have to raise your hand for these ones. So you can answer and do it, say whatever you want. What's better, to serve or be served? Well, you don't have to answer because you don't even have to say it out loud this time. I'll just give you a pass on that, by the way. Don't answer because it's the right church answer. I'm not asking if you paid attention to last week's message. Although I was glad you answered the way you did, but... Uh, you don't have to raise your hand because your life really tells the answer to that question. How about this one? What's better to give or receive? And, and reflect on and think about, my, what, what, I, what do I really answer? Not right in this moment, not just because we're at church, not because I know what the Bible says, but what do I really believe to be true? What's better, to give or to receive? And here's perhaps the most important of all the questions that I'll ask you today, and I don't know how well you think you've done so far, but this is the question. What's better to receive a short-term reward now, immediately? And it's a smaller reward. Or to receive a long-term reward that takes years to get, perhaps, but it's much greater. So what's better, a reward, immediate reward that's smaller, or a long-term reward that may take years to get that's way bigger? The passage of Scripture we're looking at today is all about what's better. And Paul's preaching a message. It's actually the next part of the message that we were looking at last week. It's in Acts chapter 20 and verse 22. So go ahead and grab your Bible. I hope you brought one or some way to access the scriptures, a phone, an iPad, whatever it is. Acts chapter 20. We'll start reading in verse 22. And if you were with us last week, you remember I told you Paul was preaching a message to a group of people about having a significant story, living out a story that made a difference. And it was a life of gospel service he pointed them to. These were friends of his that were from a church that he had spent three intense years with. 
He's telling them the last speech, the last sermon he's ever going to give them. It's the only message we have in the New Testament where Paul's preaching in the book of Acts, where Paul's preaching to believers. And so today, again, the message is to those of you who've placed your faith in Jesus Christ. If you've yet to do that, the message for you is place your faith in Jesus Christ. He gave his life for you. But to those of you who are followers of Jesus, we pick up where we left off last week, where Paul was telling these believers, if you want to have an impact, you want to make a difference, you want this church to continue to be strong in Ephesus, here's what you need to do. And he says, you remember how I lived? And he talked past tense. How I served the Lord with humility. And we talked about how people humbly serve. Just for us to be here doing this right now, hundreds of people in our church have served. People serving, people who are serving. There's people serving in bridge kids, out in the parking lot, all kinds of different stuff. People are humbly serving because they're not looking for credit. And giving their lives away for the sake of the gospel. And Paul said he did that when he was in Ephesus. You know how I did that? It was a humble service. It was a tested service. It was a passionate service. It was gospel service. It was about repentance and forgiveness of sins. And then he says in verse 22, and now I want to tell you how I'm living now. That's how I lived in the past. Let me tell you how I live now. Second part of the same message. To the same group, these people, that he's, he doesn't think he's ever going to see them again. That he loves dearly. He wants to impart these important words. And so he wants them to know What's better? Look at it, verse 22. And now, for those of you who study the Bible, you may notice that when you come to a phrase like that, Paul's making a transition. Before he talked about in the past, now today he's going to talk about the present. Let me tell you what I'm doing right now. And at the end of the message, he's going to tell us what I want you to do in the future to these Ephesian elders. And now, compelled, that's an important word, by the Spirit, I'm going to Jerusalem not knowing what will happen to me there. So he doesn't know, verse 22, what's going to happen, but he does know something, verse 23. I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. Verse 24, key verse, however, I consider my life worth nothing to me if only I may finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me. What's the task? The task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. Now, Paul writes a lot of the New Testament, and we see him use different athletic analogies throughout the New Testament about going to finish the race, finish the course, complete the goal. He says he beats his body, he makes it his slave. He says this continual idea of athletic pursuit towards a a victory, towards a goal, towards getting a crown. What's unique about the passage we just read is not only does he say that I want to complete the race, he tells us why. He gives us his motive here, the underlying current that undergrids everything he does. Why does Paul so desperately want to finish the race? Why is he beating his body, making it his slave? Why is it that he wants to finish the course? Why is it he wants to be done good and faithful servant at the end? All those statements we see throughout the scripture, why? And he tells us here in verse 24. Verse 24 was key. Because life's about more than just this life. Write that down. Life's about more than just this life. It's about more than just what we see here. It's about more than just the moments that we're in. Life is about, the life that we live here is about the life that we're going to live there. Remember, he's speaking to believers. The way you live your life here is going to impact how you spend eternity. Life's about more than just this life. See, a lot of us spend a lot of time, in fact, many people their whole lives, trying to figure out what is life all about. And songwriters will write songs about it, and people love to listen to them. Poets will write poetry about it. Philosophers will wax eloquently about it. You see books written about it, movies written about it, and people talk about it. In a more casual setting, you'll hear people say statements like this, that's what it's all about. Ever heard that? Songs written like that, different things that are out there about that. That's what it's all about. Fill in the blank with some statement or experience. Just had a good memory with your family. Now that's what it's all about. We say it about some dumb stuff, just in case you're wondering. 
hit a straight golf shot. Now that's what it's all about. Somebody hands you a glass of lemonade, you're sitting on the back porch in the rocking chair, and you go, that's what it's all about. Really? Life's all about crushed fruit. Really? That's not what we mean. Think about every time you've heard that statement. That's what it's all about. It's always been after some moment, some memory, some whether you got a race, whether you had a great time with your family, whether you were, you know, water skiing or snow skiing. It doesn't matter whatever the experience is that somebody says, that's what it's all about. They don't really mean that it's all about that exact thing. They mean it's all about the moment. It's all about seize the day, carpe diem. It's all about this instance. It's all about making memories. It's all about family. It's all about right of the instant. Is that what life's all about? If you think the answer is yes, I want to point out to you, this is the Bible, not my words. What does the Bible say? Paul's saying here the exact opposite of that, that life's not about these moments. The life's actually all about Something bigger than this life is the afterlife. At least about more. So is it wrong to enjoy the moments? It is. If you think all that there is are the moments. But you can enjoy those moments in light of eternity, in light of the impact this will have forever. It's okay to enjoy the moments. But see, the problem is many of us get duped into thinking that this is all there is. Randy Elkhorn says in a book called The Treasure Principle, we actually gave it out when we were a a new church at the beginning, and that's something I recommend every person here reads. It's a real small little booklet, but he says this statement. I'll read you this quote. He says, I'm convinced that the greatest deterrent to giving is this, the illusion that earth is our home. It's not. Christ is our home, and therefore to live as Christ and to die is gain. It'll be all the more gain as we learn to lay up treasures in heaven by giving. Now, Randy Elkhorn, in his book, The Treasure Principle, is talking specifically about financial giving, and that is true, and financial giving is a requirement, but I think it applies to all giving, giving of our time, giving of our talents, giving of our gifts, giving our lives away. And how we live here impacts how we live there. Their life is about more than just this, and Paul gets it, and he sets us up to say that statement in verses 22 and 23, the statement he's going to give in verse 24. Look at it. Look at the setup with me, verse 22. It says, and now, I'm going to talk to you about I have lived, what I did in the past. Now let me talk to you about what I'm doing now, Paul says. Compelled, and that word compelled is bound. It's oftentimes used in Greek to talk about someone being tied up with chains or with ropes. I have to do this, is what he's saying. Somebody that's being held captive. I'm held captive by the Holy Spirit. I have to go to Jerusalem. This isn't an issue of it feels like what I should do. This is what I'd like to do. It's, I have to do this. Paul says this elsewhere in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 16. Sometimes we say with Paul, like, well, he told, told everybody the gospel. Paul was amazing. Paul says, yeah, when I preach the gospel, I can't boast. It's not about me. It's not because I'm so great. I have to do this, for I'm compelled to preach. Woe to me, cursed to me, if I do not preach the gospel. So he's saying here, I'm disobedient if I don't go to Jerusalem. Well, he had said before, You know how I was when I was with you before? I served. I humbly served. You know what he's doing again? He's serving again. And what we know from the greater context of the New Testament is that Paul's on his way to Jerusalem, not just because he wants to go there and because he wants to be part of the celebration of the festivities at that time, but he's taking a gift, a financial gift, to the primarily Jewish church in Jerusalem that he's gathered together from the primarily Jewish people all around to take to the poor saints there. He's serving He's saying, I'm compelled to serve, not knowing what will happen to me there. I don't know what it means. That's what it is to walk by faith. He doesn't know all the details. Verse 23, though, I do know this. So I didn't know, verse 22, exactly the details, but I know this, that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me, prison and hardships are facing me. (laughs) Uh, Can I get a new message, Holy Spirit? 
Well, that's bad, but isn't that what we've seen? So we've gone through Acts. That's what you see. He's obedient. Things don't go well. He's obedient. Prison. He's obedient. He gets stoned. He's obedient. He gets flogged. That's rough, especially when you consider that most of us act like, as long as I do what God wants me to do, life should be smooth. It should go really nicely and comfortable is what we mean. And when it doesn't, we think either we messed up or God messed up. And that can be, you know, ha-ha funny in certain circumstances. I think I, I don't golf very often, but I'll golf every once in a while. I'm not very good. And I'll go golf with my friends. Sometimes I'll hit shots, and they'll go in the woods. And I've had this happen more than one time. They'll go in the woods, bang, hopefully no glass sound. It was banging through the woods. And then I'll get up to the green, and the ball will be in the middle of the fairway. Or it'll be on the green. And I've had friends say to me, somebody's living right. That's funny when we're playing golf. It's not funny when someone gets cancer. So they weren't living right? That's why they're sick? Or God messed up? Or somebody gets healed from cancer? God is so good. So he wasn't good if they hadn't gotten healed. And that's how we oftentimes live. And Paul's saying, no, no, no. I'm committed to following God, to, do, to being obedient, and I know it's going to sometimes go bad. He promises in this world we're going to have trouble. But that's okay. Let me tell you why. Let me tell you why I'm good with whatever, whether it's prison, whether it's flogging, whether it's being stoned, whether it's being slandered. He's cool with all of it because here's what he says, verse 24. Here's the why for why he does what he does. However, I consider, and that's accounting language. If you have the New American Standard, the King James, or the, I think even the English Standard Version says account, when I account my life, when I consider, when I calculate my life, it's worth nothing to me. Which is an interesting statement when you get a guy like Paul who plants all these churches, leads all these people to Christ, writes more books in the New Testament, published author here, uh, more books in the New Testament than anyone else. So he accomplishes a lot. And he says, my life's worth nothing to me. There's another place in the New Testament in Philippians chapter 3, you can read it on your own, where Paul lists off his worldly accomplishments because at one time he did live his life trying to accomplish things, trying to try and achieve, reach certain status. And he said, I was, I was doing better than all my peers. I was smarter than all those guys, had done better in school, was more righteous as far as outward righteousness. And then he says, I consider it all rubbish, which is interesting. It's the only place in the NIV that I'm familiar with that translates in British word rubbish. I don't ever use the word rubbish. Rubbish. What are you talking about? Rubbish. And so if you look at the Greek, what the word rubbish is, it's actually a Greek swear word. And what Paul says is, that's all a bunch of crap. That's me toning it down. That's all a bunch of crap in comparison to being found in Christ and knowing him and the power of the resurrection and even fellowshipping in his sufferings, if that's what it takes for me to know him. And then he goes on and he says, I want to pursue the goal. I press on towards the prize. Here he says, I consider my life worth nothing, but there's one thing that really matters. If only I may finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me. I've got one thing to do. It's obedience. What's the task that Jesus has given him in the last part of the verse? The task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. That's the task. Interesting, considering Paul's task is the same task that we have. The same task that Jesus Christ himself was on. Jesus came to seek and save the lost. Luke chapter 19, verse 10. He came not to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. To rescue us from our sin, from death from separation, that we'd be reconciled to God. And then he commissions us to go do the same. At the end of every gospel, Matthew, go make disciples. Mark, preach to all creation. Luke, preach forgiveness, repentance to everybody. John, just as the Father sent me, I'm sending you. And then you get to Acts. And the book that we're looking at here, 
Acts chapter 1, verse 8, the most important verse in the whole book, because it outlines the whole book, gives a theme for the whole book, and sets off what the church is all about. It says, but you will receive power. You're going to be able to do things that you naturally wouldn't be able to do on your own. When the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses. Not you will go do witnessing. It's going to be who you are, and witness is a noun. You will be my witnesses. That's who you are. As I call you to myself, I give you my spirit, then you go testify about what, what happened in your life. Where? Everywhere. That's the task. Jerusalem, Judea, the uttermost parts of the world. The book will go to Roman, to Rome, and here to Raleigh, and everywhere. That's the task. And Paul was so committed to the task, he says, I, can, I consider my life, carpe diem, the seize the moments, all these things, worth nothing. There's one thing I'm to do. He says it in another place in Philippians chapter 1. It says, for me to live as Christ, to die as gain. To complete the task. For me to live as Christ. I know him better. The power of his resurrection better. The fellowship and his sufferings better. I'm going to be found in him as I serve him, as I continue on with the task. And then if I die, that's great. I get to cash in my chips. That's gain, he says. That's payday. That's when I get the reward. Rather than the short term, we're living for all the reward here. Uh, that's when I cash in the chips and I get to be with him. He's the ultimate reward. And he's going to pour out reward on me for the way that I live my life while I was here. Because how I live my life here impacts there. And for me to live here then is Christ. And for me to die is gain. Is that how it is for you? Is that how it is for me? That's ultimately the question. And if we're honest, most of us in the moment right now here, that's what we want to be true. And we've probably made decisions before. I'm going to live my life for Christ. I'm going to do these things. I'm going to do whatever he wants. I'd be willing to have my head chopped off for Jesus, you know, at the, at the moment. But then we leave here and you go get in your car and you do what you do on Sunday afternoon. And then Monday comes and Tuesday comes. And by that time, Thursday rolls around. You're like, what? You don't even remember what happened at church last Sunday. And then you come back the next Sunday. You're like, yeah, yeah, I want to give my whole life to Jesus. And what happens? How come we don't, between one Sunday and the next Sunday, Something takes place where what we thought we were going to do when we walked out these doors and completing God's mission and what we actually do don't happen. And I was thinking about it this week, and I think it's a lot like when I'm with my kids at the end of the day, and I'll give them a mission. We'll be in the living room, and it'll be time for bed. And I'll say, all right, it's time for your nighttime routine. And they're not excited about going to bed, but then I'll say, we're going to see who can win. And they get all excited. I say, here's your nighttime routine. Go upstairs, wash your face, brush your teeth, put on your jammies, and get in your bed. And then they leave. We put the baby to bed. We don't make her do that. So we put the baby, the two-year-old to bed. But we've got these three other little girls. And they trounce off like three musketeers. They're all excited going up the steps. And I believe in that moment, they 110% intend on doing their nighttime routine. So I tell them at that moment, do your nighttime routine. All right, we're going to do nighttime routine. Wash your face, brush your teeth, put on your jammies, get in bed. But somehow by the time they get upstairs, that has been translated in their mind. From brush your teeth, wash your face, put on your pajamas, and get in your bed to take half your clothes off and jump on your bed. <laughs> it doesn't matter which half can change day to day, but we'll just put, take half, jump on your, grab all your stuffed animals and drag them across the bedroom. Please finish the rainbow loom you began at the beginning of the day, right now, because that's what I wanted you to do really bad right now. That was your mission. What happened? Because it's like once I come up there, they remember the mission. It's like some of us might be when Jesus returns. Oh, this wasn't what I was supposed to be doing. I come up there and it's all of a sudden, oh, I didn't brush my teeth. I didn't put my pajamas. I didn't do the. I believe when we were downstairs, they really intended on completing the mission. So what happened? Easy answer could be, 
that they got distracted. They saw the toys, they saw the bed looks so fun, you know, whatever thing you could say, but I don't think that's the answer. And that's what we sometimes think. Well, Facebook and work errands and I've got to go take care of the kids, do these things. That's not, I don't think that's the real issue. I think the real issue is that in the moment at church or in my living room with the girls telling them it's nighttime routine, we really believe that we're going to do it. We really intend to do it. We sincerely want to do it. The problem is we have another moment and we have another moment and we have another moment and before you know it we've forgotten because we live in the moment Paul's saying here he don't live in the moment he's thought about all the moments of this life he considers it worth nothing in comparison to knowing Christ he wants to live as Christ to die as gain and been crucified with Christ he died to this life therefore he no longer lives with Christ living in him so everything he does here is for the task of proclaiming God's grace and what you see, there are people that live like Paul who live in light of what's going to happen there. And then there are people throughout the scripture, and you study this on your own, study every character in the Bible that lives for the moment, and every character in the Bible that lives with a perspective like Paul. Their lives go very differently. Let me tell you a little, little cheat here and tell you the end of your study before you get started. The people who live for the moment, it goes poorly. And start thinking about different people that you know already. David lives for the moment. There's a real defining moment in his life. It goes bad. Saul, multiple times, goes poorly. Moses hits the rock, doesn't go well. Probably the classic example is Esau. I'll tell you the Esau story. It's in Genesis chapter 25 if you want to read it on your own. But let's set it up. Let me give you the Old Testament uh, background here. Is in the Old Testament, if you had a, a son, the firstborn son, that was more significant than all the other children. They had received a double inheritance. They were the legacy carrier in the family. They got the birthright. However, those of you who've read the Old Testament, you know that nowhere in the Old Testament does it say that God is the God of Abraham, the father of our faith, his son Isaac, and his first son Esau. It doesn't say that. God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Esau. It should say that, just based on custom, but it doesn't, and it doesn't because Esau was a man of the moment. Genesis chapter 25 tells the story of his birth. It also tells that he was out in the field one day hunting. He was a hunter. His brother Jacob was more of an indoorsman. <laughs> he's indoorsy. And so he's inside cooking a meal. And Esau's out on the field. Esau comes back famished. Esau says, give me some of your stew. Jacob decided to cut a deal. He says, I'll give you my stew if you give me your birthright. First of all, that's a stupid trade. <laughs> That'd be like if we were out in the lobby today and you were like, I need a breath mint. Hey, Scott, can I have a breath mint? And I go... Give me the deed to your house. Those are in the same category. What are you talking about? Stew for birthright? And it's lentil stew. Read the Bible. There isn't even meat in there. And Esau does it. He does it. The end of chapter 25 says, and he hated his birthright. You think he regretted that decision? It's in the moment. It's interesting if you read the New Testament talking about that decision, reading the book of Hebrews, Hebrews uh, correlates that to sexual immorality. There was no sexual immorality in the Genesis story, but it talks about it in the, in the Hebrew account. It's like sexual immorality. How many people do we know that will forfeit their family and their future for uh, an orgasmic moment? We live in the moment. Well, maybe you haven't done that, but if we live in, if everything's about carpe diem, seize the day. It's not wrong to make the most of the time that we have here, but when you're just in the moment, that's a deadly place to be. It's the exact opposite of a biblical worldview. And what Paul's telling us here is that life is about more than just this life. Let me read you that Randy Alcorn quote again. He says, I am convinced that the greatest deterrent to giving is this, the illusion that earth is our home. It's not. 
Christ is our home. And therefore, to live as Christ and to die as gain, he quotes Paul. And it will be all the more gain as we learn to lay up treasures in heaven by giving. What Alcorn's book is about, he's really based off of Matthew chapter 6, where Jesus says this very thing. You get to live your life one of two ways. You can store it for the short-term reward here or the long-term reward there. You get to decide. Matthew chapter 6, Jesus says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where they're temporary. Moth and rust destroy where they can be taken from you. Thieves break in and they steal. They get the credit at work. They take it from your bank account. It goes with the house burns down. You didn't have enough insurance. It, it can all be taken. And Jesus says, but store for yourselves treasures in heaven. We're going to receive a greater reward. Where moth and rust don't destroy, it can't be taken for you. It's permanent. And where thieves do not break in and steal, God's the one that's making sure it's secure. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So is it all about here? That's what it's all about. Or is it all about there? What's better? And Paul's showing us what's better is to live our lives for there because how we live here impacts how we spend there. So that's a newsflash for some people. You didn't realize, you just thought, I'm in. I I trusted Christ, and so I'm going to spend eternity in heaven. That is true. By grace, you were saved. And by grace, he gives you opportunity to to present the gospel. By grace, he gives you opportunity through your life to demonstrate Jesus Christ. By grace, he gives you the fruit of the Spirit. And how you live that out will impact how you spend eternity. It won't be the same for everyone. That's a newsflash for some believers. That's not we're all in. Yeah, you're in. But how you'll spend eternity, we're all going to have different amounts of treasures. It's all going to be different. I saw one time a pastor do an illustration that really stuck with me. He gave me a visual, so I'm going to share it with you. He said, uh, imagine this rope. It represents eternity. And the rope just goes on and on and on. It doesn't. It ends at the end of that speaker over there. But we'll just imagine. It's a pretty long rope. And uh, in light of that, we'll imagine that uh, this little mark on the rope represents your life. James tells us our life is a vapor. We see elsewhere in scriptures, our years, 70 years, 80 years, medical technology and all that stuff, maybe 90 years you could live, 100 perhaps, but it's pretty small in light of eternity. So just say that, you know, starts forever back there and goes forever there. So if I told you how you live during this time period impacts how you will spend the rest of this, how dumb would we have to be to live our whole lives for this time period? That's what many of us do. That's what Jesus is saying. Don't store for yourselves treasures here. Because how you're living here, how you invest your life here, is going to impact there. That's why Paul's saying, I consider my life here worth nothing. If I can only do one thing, it's this. Complete the task. Finish the race. That's why I beat my body. I make it my slave. That's why at the end I want to be told good and faithful servant. It's for this. To finish that task, what's the task? To testify to the gospel of God's grace. And so how do we do that? We give our lives away. That's our second point. We must give our lives away. It's not just about money. It's all of our lives. Our time, our talent, our resources, everything about us for the sake of God's mission. For us to live as Christ, to die as gain. What's better? To live for here or to live for there? And Paul goes on, and he's speaking to these Ephesian elders here, and he says some things that are really specific to elders. Verses 25 through 35, we have elders in our church, elders, pastors, the overseers of the congregation. And um, I'm not going to give you all the details of all the stuff between 25 and 35. There's just too much there. But verse 35 summarizes this whole message that began back in verse 18. And so we're going to get to verse 35. I'll read you verses 25 through 35. It says, Now I know, so now this is what I'm doing, and now I know that none of, none of you... 
among whom I've gone about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. That was incredibly sad news for these Ephesian elders. Therefore, I declare to you today that I am innocent of the blood of all men. For I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. He's referring to something from the book of Ezekiel here, the watchman idea, that he's saying, I'm not responsible for the people that were under me that were, heard my preaching and how they respond to the message because I told them the truth. I told them they needed to repent. I told them they needed to turn to Christ. If they didn't, their blood's on their own hands. So I told everybody I came into contact with about a relationship with Christ. And now he tells these elders, keep watch over yourselves. There's the first role of an elder. Guard your own heart. And you have an added responsibility. All the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds, is a command. Be shepherds of the church of God. And the church of God is so precious, it's which he bought with his own blood. It's his church. No matter what name's on the outside, what denomination. God purchased it with his own blood. The blood of his son, Jesus Christ. In other words, another place in the Bible is called his bride. I know that I le- after I leave... Savage wolves will come among you. This is how you shepherd the church. You protect them from the savage wolves. He's talking about false teachers. And they will not spare the flock. In verse 30, even from your own number, even people from your own congregation will arise and distort. That's the word twist, pervert the truth in order to draw away disciples after themselves. So be on guard. Be on your guard. So he already said it. Verse 28, he said, keep watch. And there he says it again. Be on your guard. This is something continually you need to be doing as elders. And so I say this to our elders, to our pastors that are here in our church. And he says this. Remember that for three years I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. Now I commit you to God. He makes a transition. Now I commit you to God and to the word of his grace. It's the word which can build us up. And give us the inheritance among all those who are sanctified, set apart for the Lord. The inheritance he's talking about is an eternal inheritance that we receive. Ephesians 1 tells us when we come to Christ, we receive the Holy Spirit, which is a guarantee of our inheritance. It's all of God's riches. It's peace. It's joy. It's, it's love. It's kindness. It's everything that comes from God. And then he goes back to an example of his own life here now. I've not coveted anyone's silver or gold or clothing. You yourselves know that these hands of mine have supplied my own needs. And the needs of my companions. And everything I did, I showed you that by this kind of hard work, we must help the weak. It's one of the reasons why we work, to be able to help other people. And then here's the summary of the whole message. Remembering the words of the Lord Jesus himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And so here, maybe in your Bible, it's in red letters. These are Jesus' words. It's more blessed to give than to receive. What's better? It's better to give than to receive. Jesus himself says it. What's interesting about this statement as you can read all the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, you don't see it anywhere in the Gospels. We have a very similar statement from the lips of Jesus in Luke chapter 6 and verse 38, where he talks about giving. He says, give and it'll be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together. That's the idea of an agricultural. You really stuff the basket full of the seeds and shake it together and continue to get as much as you can in there and running over. And it'll be poured into your lap. That's, that's how you give. Try to be generous. For with the measure you use... It'll be measured to you. The way that you give, that's what will be given to you. Store for yourselves treasures in heaven. As you invest here, and being generous with your life here, then God rewards you there, and he's going to reward you the same way that you were generous here. It's better to give than it is to receive. Now, we know that every word that Jesus said and every deed that he did wasn't recorded in the Gospels. John himself tells us that. And so it doesn't mean that Jesus didn't say this, because it wasn't in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And it's really interesting, those of you who study your Bibles, maybe you'll notice this too, that Paul said, remembering. 
He doesn't say to these Ephesian elders, did you know that one time Jesus said, this is something they already knew that Jesus had said. Remember, and maybe remember that the apostles taught you, other apostles have already told you this. Maybe some of them, and I don't know this for sure or not, but maybe some of them heard it from the lips of Jesus themselves. He says, remembering the words of the Lord Jesus. And so then Jesus himself said, it's better to give than to receive. Now, if anybody could say that, isn't it Jesus? He gave it all. In Corinthians, it tells us that he became poor so that we could be rich. That wasn't just that he had nowhere to lay his head so we could have a fat bank account. Talking about eternal wealth. He became sin, it tells us in Corinthians as well, so that we could become righteousness. There was a transaction that took place on the cross. When Jesus gave his life away, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that Jesus came and he gave himself away. So if anybody could say it's better to give than to receive, it's Jesus, right? I mean, he comes and he gives, think about what he leaves. He leaves a place with no crying and no tears and no pain, and he comes here with cancer and divorce and injustice and all kinds of problems. He leaves a place where they're crying out to him, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Hallelujah, what a Savior, amazing God, laying down crowns at his feet to come to a place here where they'll mock him, they'll slander him, and we'll use his name as a swear word. He leaves a place of complete and total majesty and holiness. And he comes here and he goes to the cross and he's forsaken by his Father and he takes on the wrath of God for all of the sins, for your sins and my sins and all the sins of mankind. He knew giving. He gave it all. And he says it's better to give than to receive. Is it wrong to receive? No, it's not wrong to receive. In fact, if you don't receive, you don't have Jesus Christ. See, the wages of sin is death. That's separation from God. But the gift of God, he's offering us a gift because he gave. You have to receive the gift. The gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus and what he did on the cross. So you have to receive. What Jesus is saying here is not that it's bad to receive. But he's saying it's better to give. If anybody has credibility in saying that, it's Jesus Christ. He gave his life for us. If anybody could quote Jesus in saying, it's probably Paul. And I don't know if you know Paul's story or not, or if you know the rest of the book of Acts. Spoiler alert for those of you who don't want to know until we get to the end. I'm going to plug your ears. You know how the book of Acts ends, Acts chapter 28? There's no resolution. We don't know the end of the story. And here's why Luke writes it that way. He writes it that way because the story is still being written by us. Because we're the church. The book of Acts is the story of the church. It's this movement of God. And we're supposed to continue on with this movement of God and the way that we live. And so when we, Paul's on trial, we don't know what ends up happening at the end of the story. Tradition tells us what happens to Paul eventually in AD 66 or 67 is he's martyred for his faith. He gets his head chopped off. Of, of Jesus' 12 disciples, 10 of them were martyred. One of them took his own life. He betrayed Jesus. Another one died of old age. The other 10 were martyred for their faith. Why is that? Because they knew that coming to Christ, when Jesus says, deny yourself, take up your cross, take up your cross didn't mean carry a burden. We've made it mean that. And that's not what it means. It meant die. They had already died to their lives. They'd already died to this life. It's like Paul says, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. I'm crucified with Christ, therefore I no longer live as Christ lives in me. Verse 24 here, I consider my life worth nothing. I've already died to this life. I'm not living my life for Christ. What about us? says here it's better to give you know it's real interesting that you can say that we can talk about the examples does that motivate you to be willing to have your head cut off you don't have to answer i'll answer for you for me no 
Paul got his head cut off. Wow, Paul's a really committed dude. And I'm going to go out in the lobby and shake your hand and say hi to people and pray with some folks and talk. And I'm going to maybe be motivated to die for my faith up to that moment. But about the time I get in my car, the fact that Paul got his head cut off, I want the guy in front of me to get through that yellow light so I don't have to stop. Like, I'm, I'm, I've forgotten that by that point. And Jesus, Jesus died, so therefore, maybe I'd die for my faith. Well, Jesus did a lot of stuff I don't and can't do. So why would I do this? Why would you do this? Why would you give your whole life away? Not just all your money, but all your time and all your talents and everything about you? Well, there's a couple motivators here in this text. One is Jesus said to do it. That's a strong motivator. The other one is he attaches a promise to it. And this is what makes my ears perk up. Don't listen to what I say, but look what the Bible says. It's more blessed. There's a promise. It's better for you. You know what that word blessed means? It's a Greek term, makarios. It could be translated happy. Happier. You want happiness? Many of us give our lives for happiness. We're trying to be happy. We're trying to find satisfaction. And the happiness here, it's, it's more than just a smile on your face. Circumstances are all good. This is an inner joy, a true satisfaction. And we see this stated multiple times in Matthew chapter 5. Makarios are the people that are meek. Makarios are the poor in spirit. Makarios are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they will be filled. It says, blessed, blessed, blessed. But it's happy, happy, happy. Before Phil Robertson said it, it's Jesus. Happy, happy, happy. You want to be happy? Do this stuff. You want to be happy? Do this stuff. You want real happiness? Give your life away. Now, here's the real question. This is what faith is. This isn't just for this message. This is for every decision in your life. Faith is... Believing the promises of God, not the ones we make up and claim that we say that he's going to do because we thought somehow he impressed that upon us. What he says in his word, promises that he writes down very clearly. We bank our lives on those. So we live our lives, that's living by faith. Without faith, it's highly unlikely, very improbable. No, the Bible says without faith, it's impossible to please God. So we want to live our lives for Christ. We live by faith. Living by faith is then living out what he says to be true and believing that that's going to be the case. So then living by faith is living our lives as if giving is better than receiving. So what's better? Go back to our game. What's better? How we live here impacts there. Will you give your life away? We're going to give you opportunities to give your life away. You think you should give your life away on Sunday morning? You think you should give your life away on Monday morning? We think you should give your life away all the time. You've got a unique opportunity when we gather together with a bunch of believers and people that will come and check out God. And we've got opportunities for you to serve here on Sunday morning, whether it's in the parking lot, helping people get parked and not thinking about that stuff so they can focus on what Jesus wants to speak to them. Or setting up, or it's tearing down, or it's working with bridge kids. Maybe you've got unique skills with editing video. Maybe you've got unique skills with writing, and we want you to write on our blog or edit blogs or do things along those lines. Maybe you say, I don't have any skills. Well, can you write? We write people notes during the week. Can you do data entry? Can you, can you do some things that we just need to do them? Run cables, pick stuff up. I don't know anything about tech team, but we got roles for you on, the, on that, even those spots. And we got the group expo today, afterwards. You can go see a bunch of those opportunities. I hope you'll all go that aren't serving somewhere in our church, unless you're a guest. We're not asking you to do it, but everybody else, find a spot to serve. Give your life away. And that's what Paul exhorts here to these Ephesian elders. Give your life away. And then look what he does. Look at these last words. When he had said this, he knelt down with all of them and prayed. This was an emotional time for them. It says they all wept and they embraced him and kissed him. And what grieved them the most was his statement that they would never see his face again. They loved each other. But then get this last statement. Then they accompanied him to the ship. Why? What was Paul doing? 
he was going to give his life away. So he tells the Ephesian elders this. Here's what you need to do. And then he says, see ya. I'm going to do it. Now, you need to go back here and do it. And here's what we know to be true. They didn't do a very good job of it. And read Revelation chapter 2. They lose their first love. False teachers come in the church. He continually he writes to Timothy when he's pastoring the church at Ephesus. And he tells them to warn, warns them, calls out by name, false teachers that are rising up in the church. And it had an impact in the church. They didn't guard the church well. Now, what we end up finding out happens in history, and this oftentimes isn't the case, we don't know from history or, or, or whatever, is that Ignatius, one of our church fathers, tells us in the second century, the church at Ephesus repented, and there was revival that came at that church. But a generation was wasted because they missed it. Don't miss it. What's better? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, I just come before you, I pray on behalf of us as a church, that we would love you with all of our hearts, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, with all of our strength, that we would believe you, that we live by faith, that we live by your promises, and that we would give our lives away for the sake of the gospel. I pray for every believer here that you'd fill us with the knowledge of your love, the height, the depth, the length, the width, that you'd fill us to the full measure of you. Even though that's not possible, we know you can do the impossible beyond what we could ask or imagine according to the works at work within us, the Holy Spirit. God, will you do supernatural stuff through us? as a church, as individuals. God, will you do something supernatural? If there's someone here that doesn't know you, will you save them? Take them from being without hope and without God into a relationship with you? Will you bring them to you right now? And if you need to trust Christ as your Savior, you can do it right as you sit in your seat. Call upon him as Lord. Ask him to forgive you of your sins. Ask him to be your Savior. And Father, I pray for believers. Empower us. Equip us to do the good works that you've planned ahead of time for us to do for your kingdom, for your name, that we would finish the race, that we would be faithful, that we wouldn't be caught up in the moment, but we live in light of eternity. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.